Runners Radio is brought to you by Runners.com and the Runners Red Zone. It's the only running coaching platform you will ever need. There's no thinking, no planning. We do all of that. Just put us in your ears and away you go. 45-minute quality running sessions, strength and conditioning for anyone, yoga and much, much more. If you're wanting to take minutes off your PB, run a marathon or just beginning your running journey, then head on over to runners.com, that's R-U-N-N-E-Z.com and get started. Rightio, let's get on to the show. G'day and welcome to Runners Radio, our first of 2021, a bit of a mix of a coach's corner this one and a bit of a deep dive as well into a really, really interesting expert in the sport of endurance, performance, hydration in particular, former elite triathlete, sports scientist, he's done it all this man, he's worked with pretty much every elite sport you can think of and his company Precision Hydration is changing the game. I tell you what, Andy Blow's got a lot of great info to add today, but I just want to have a five minutes about him, and then I reckon the listeners will absolutely be fascinated with some of the products that we've got here that I've tested over the last few days and just some of the ways we can move the needle on their own performance because there is, as an endurance athlete, so much we can learn from those one percenters, and obviously hydration and nutrition is something that people get wrong more times than not. Andy, I welcome you to the show, mate, all the way from London. Hello, hello, Rick. Good to be here. Fantastic to have you here, mate. I, this is a subject that um, we've got hundreds and or thousands of marathoners now, and and it's just there's so many ways to skin a cat. The variabilities are like no one individual is going to be the same, and often people, um, if they're reading or they're, they're scouring the internet, and and that, unfortunately we just want a quick fix, quick fix, like anything in life, I guess. And and this is what you've made a really I've loved what you've said for so long about no, there is no quick fix, and and you've almost mastered that with some of the testing, sweat testing, online testing, and and more real deep testing, and then your products are so easy to follow. Um, and for people like me, like if you if you're running over ninety minutes, two hours, anything over that, um, you you must check this stuff out. But before we get into any of that, I'll let you do most of the talking. Take us back to the beginning as you as an athlete, and then I guess take us through where you got into the. Nutrition, hydration, um, obviously a couple of a couple of watershed moments there, and then we'll talk about performance, hydration, and I guess the last century of progression. Yeah, well, um, thanks for the, thanks for the big intro, Rick. It's um, it has been it's been a it's been a fascinating last sort of 10, 15 years when I've been learning more and more about hydration, and it all started out when. I was basically screwing up my own races because I was I was doing okay in triathlons in in and running races in in cooler conditions. I would race pretty well in the UK most of the year round, and then inevitably you start travelling abroad, going to hotter places, doing longer races. And I was finding that those races in, especially in the heat and humidity, I was absolutely crushed. I was just I was useless. I was ending up in the medical tent. I was just a total mess every time. And I always knew that I had a big sweat rate. And so I assumed it was just I was getting dehydrated and I started drinking a lot more in races to try and compensate for that. And that in some ways seemed to make the problems worse. And it, it was it was so frustrating because you'll know and lots of people listening will know how much when you're really taking your sport mega seriously, you you put so much energy and effort into trying to do everything right. And then you have such high expectations of what you can do on race day. And then I was going into races like super duper fit, really ready to go, and then just being absolutely terrible. And it was the most frustrating thing for years. And it ended up in me going down every rabbit hole I could find to try and learn about what it might be. And it was it was sort of obvious. It was something to do with either energy or hydration or and probably hydration because of my sweating. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a doctor, um, a heart surgeon, Dr. Raj Jutley. And I was describing the symptoms I was getting. And he actually looked at some photos of me racing and saw all the white salt stains that I had on my racing kit. And he kind of put two and two together and, and pushed me to get a sweat test done, which at the time involved me going to a hospital, having the electrolyte levels and the sodium levels in my sweat assessed. And he sort of said to me before I went, he said, I bet we're going to find that you're sodium loss in your sweat is super high 
And I just kind of said, well, I didn't even know this could vary from person to person. I knew you lost electrolytes in your sweat, but I didn't know there was a big difference. Anyway, we, we had the test done, found out that sure enough, he's dead right. My sodium loss in my sweat is super, super high. I lose about 1.8 grams of sodium per liter of sweat. And the normal is sort of more like eight or 900. So it's about double what the average person loses. And he just said to me, look, I think what's happening here is you're drinking way, way too much and diluting your, your electrolytes and you're not replacing enough electrolytes either. So we did this big kind of shift. Next, next few big training sessions in the heat, I did next long race. We put loads more sodium electrolytes in, in my system not quite as much fluid and it was literally like someone had flicked a light switch it was like night and day for me just made all the difference in the world and and at that point then then there was a long period i suppose of like trial and error to to refine and dial in exactly what i needed in different conditions and stuff but basically I'd, i was suddenly like i was suddenly on the right path and i'm sure you've had experiences i'm sure other people have where you've you've kind of you've turned a corner and for me it was just one of those things that made such a difference to my performance that when when I stopped competing and I was I was always I'd trained as a sports scientist and I always wanted to work with athletes I was doing some coaching or running a sports science lab and I thought this is a test to doing a sweat test and getting people's hydration right is definitely something which is not very widely available like when I was trying to find out about this stuff the information on the internet was pretty poor there was there was just not a lot out there and I couldn't find anywhere to go. I just happened to get lucky that I had a friend who was a medic who could help me out. So I thought this is something that needs opening up for more athletes. And that was kind of the genesis of what, what then became precision hydration. Then over the last 10 years, you know, we've been, we've been sort of expanding what we do. Yeah. And you've mentioned a couple of things there, but the trial and error, like any coach, um, you're obviously a coach when you were racing at a good level, but you always had that, analytical mind and the mind to deep and continue to delve deeper i guess when you find it when you when you're still in it yourself and you're at the peak of your powers and i know you're still working for some uh formula one teams it was a benetton and, and the like back yeah. then and and i think was it your, your boss or the head the head bloke did he, he let you go and, and train at the elite level because he understood you in it so you're still at the peak of your powers you, you're trying to experiment with these elite athletes as well and you experiment on yourself there's a lot of dogma out there. There's a lot. There's a lot of not much quality info back then. What what year are we talking? Early two thousands, mid two thousands. There. Yeah, this was probably. I guess when it got worst for me, I did my first Ironman in in the year two thousand, and that was a dreadful experience in terms of you know, have, uh, falling apart. It was in Ironman Switzerland, which was actually really hot. It was about thirty odd degrees that year, and so that was a bad. And then I guess I probably started experimenting around two thousand and. 2003 around that time probably nailed it though in about 2005 2006 which is when i when i stopped competing and back then of course certainly early in that phase internet the internet wasn't as accessible as mm. what it is now you know i remember i used to have to plug plug my laptop into the modem in the wall and wait for it to dial up and then i'd go searching on like ultra running forums for information on electrolytes and stuff and it was you know, it was a it was a very different experience to what it is now. So that's uh, it. But yeah, the 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 guy that you mentioned, Bernie, my my boss, he was he was very encouraging in all of this because he he understood that you know he's a very practical, applied guy. He's an ex special forces guy. He's done everything in sport. You know, like won survival of the fittest competitions, been a been a cross country skier, been an elite triathlete, and he he was always, I think, supportive of me pursuing learning through doing because he sort of knew that and i've got a lot of respect for academics and and scientists and people who do lab work and and um develop um, research and and theories on on stuff but it's always got to then have that crossover into the applied world and that's what bernie was very good at expanding on you know and letting me letting me find my way through self-experimentation really there's something, yeah, it's something really like powerful about being able to apply it as well, especially in your early days as an athlete. And then you obviously experiment yourself on yourself. So a few years before precision precision hydration started up, take us through that race where um, everything just clicked and tell us like, if you remember, or you, you should, I reckon you would, like your, your basic hydration plan and nutrition plan for that Ironman, or was it a 70.3 that went really well and you go, geez, I've cracked the code here. Um, so tell us that day and I guess what you did that day. I know it's 
I know it's a few years before the company even founded, but um, what you did that day. Yeah, the, the most significant thing, is, it was for an Ironman race, and the most significant thing I did was, uh, I think the figure that we came up with at the time, so so going back, when I did, I did Ironman Kona in 2000, I think it was 2003 or it might have been 2004, and I got that really wrong. That went badly, badly wrong. I had a terrible race, and the I was taking electrolytes during the race because I got given some, some tablets, um, to, to top the electrolytes up. And I guess my attitude towards electrolytes at that point was more that it was important that you took them, but I didn't sort of rather stupidly didn't really get on the bandwagon of the dose response idea. So it was like, I'm, I'm taking some, therefore I'm covered. You know, it's like they're some kind of magical pixie dust that you just had to have a little bit and then you'd be, you'd be golden. And then it was after that when, when I'd had the test, and um, Dr. Jutley said to me, look, we've got to look at what you're roughly taking and then dial it up a lot. And I think we worked out, I, I couldn't tell you the exact numbers, but let's say it might maybe worked out. I was taking like two or 300 milligrams of sodium every hour, which is a pretty low amount. Um, he said to me, looking at the numbers here, he just punched, punched the stuff into a spreadsheet and said, look, I reckon we need to be taking over a thousand milligrams per hour. And the only way I could figure out to do that at the time was to buy some salt capsules, you know, some actual tablets and take them with the drinks that I was taking on the bike. And it, and I think at the time, because of the strength of it, it was like taking four or five of these tablets an hour, which seemed excessive, but he's, he's a doctor. He's a smart guy. I was sort of, I trusted him. I was also like desperate to try anything this would work. So I just tried taking these sodium capsules on the bike in the Ironman I'd had them I used to stick double-sided sticky tape underneath the aero bars on my bike stick them on there and then I'd peel them off every 15-20 minutes and glug them, glug them down with some water and it was in that race I think it was it was a race in Ironman UK when I realized like a few hours into the bike that actually like I'm usually falling apart at this point and starting to feel the fatigue coming in the nips are cramping my quads and that sort of thing and I was just going strong and feeling great and I ended up just having a you know a solid race. What was and, the run? What was the run leg? What's the run leg? Um, the the run was I From think the 20. run. You know I I basically my my triathlons used to be I'd come out the swim okay probably go a little bit backwards on the bike and then move forward on the run and that were that race was this that race was the same but I just came you know came crashing through the field really and I think I probably came off the bike in the top you know, just outside the top 20 and ended up well inside the top 10. So it was, wow. it was a really solid, really solid day. And what was great was it was things like, not only did I perform a bit better or quite a bit better, but I used to be, I mean, everyone's a bit ruined the day after a marathon or an Ironman or whatever, but I always used to hobble around like I'd been, you know, beaten with a baseball bat. And the next day after this one, I'm like, okay, well, I feel pretty tired and stiff and sore, but I'm not like struggling to walk down the stairs and things like my muscles don't feel like they've been ripped apart. So I used to get really bad cramps. And I think that that was causing so much muscle damage that for days and days afterwards, I would have the doms from hell. You know, mm. it was really bad. And, and then, you know, doing this, doing the extra supplementation, it was just like, okay, well, I haven't done as much muscle damage. So I'm in a lot better shape the next day. So it was all of those things kind of came together and just, yeah, made it made it feel so much better. Well, we'll touch on some of the side effects of, of low sodium and stuff a little bit in a minute and those neurological performance indicate and, and the indicators and that. But what was your run, your hydration plan on the run um, coming, off, um, coming off that? Was it just the same the whole way through? Yeah, basically on the run, I, I decided that I would load up on the bike that day mm. with the sodium and then obviously do the run a bit more on feel. So I think this was, this was back in the day when we, when I'd got still got some of those little canisters that used to get camera film in, you know, the little black things. And I filled a couple of those up with sodium capsules and just put those in my Jersey pocket. And then on the run, I was just kind of popping those as I felt I needed to. I couldn't tell you honestly how much I took, but I do remember that running down, there's a big, long dragging, downhill where I was getting nips of cramp in my quads I remember you know taking some capsules on the way into an aid station washing it down with some flat coca-cola and then carrying on and finding that actually if I did that my cramps I could keep the cramps at bay whereas normally that was the sign when I started getting those nips of cramp it was the sign that very soon it was it was leg my legs were going to lock up yeah so 
so I kind of I did that and I think I think nowadays I still if we're working with a an Ironman triathlete we definitely you know using that as an example we definitely put a lot of emphasis on like managing the nutrition hydration on the bike for to set up a good run and doing the run a little still having a plan for the run but doing the run a little bit more on feel because you if you've done long races you'll know when you get sort of six seven hours into something you've got to listen to your body you know you can have a plan but by that time the plan may have exploded so you know and it's the same with ultra runners even with marathons to an extent you know although marathons are kind of more controlled for most people because they're what you know if you're if you're seriously good they're between two and four hours so you can you know you can kind of confine what you what you're doing but yeah there's a, there's an element and this is a difficult thing that a lot of people don't always understand when like you you mentioned it at first which is which is really important a lot of people want a quick fix a lot of people want the simple answer i'm going to do this to, and then everything will be solved and with with nutrition hydration electrolyte replacement there is kind of there's some great guidance and i got a quick fix in the respect that eventually when when that big lever that i had to pull which was whack up the electrolytes dial down the fluid was in place that made an instant improvement but then from there on the refining it piece is the bit that takes time it takes patience takes trial and error it takes a little bit of all it takes a little bit of organization because otherwise it's too easy to you know you you know that you can get you can get an eight or nine tenths of the way there with one big leap but then getting that left that last little piece is all about okay test and adjust and test and adjust and for me that was like okay well learning what to do in cold conditions versus hot or learning what to do over nine hours as opposed to four hours you know the subjective sort of subtleties subjective nature of, of your your, first, your good race there in, in i think it was london you mentioned and then if you went to kona six months nine months 12 months later it, i'd imagine it'd be a very different nutrition and hydration plan um if you're look and obviously from a fitness perspective you've done the work but everything can go wrong just from a couple of a couple of mishaps there so but that's i guess what the long rides and the long runs are for on on the on the weekends um and the viewers the viewers will practice their specifics and their their real quality ins and outs of paces and hills and they'll do their mobility and the strength and and the long run and the long ride um andy that's that's what this is for and trial and error and getting testing and off the experts like like these guys and and then going and, and playing around with it on the weekend and if you got to go back and um and get some different product i love we'll touch on the product quickly um and then we'll, we'll talk about it at the end as well but were you were you when you were getting your sweat testing mate back in those days were you that you were just was that a that wasn't a really a concrete figure was it was it just was it concrete could you yep it was um, the, the the number that i got so i got when i got the sweat test done, the number was pretty um precise as in the the test told me like you lose in the sample of sweat that we took, you lose 1.8 grams of yeah. sodium in every liter. But to me at the time, without Dr. Jutley's help, that number meant nothing to me. I didn't know whether that meant mm. that, you know, where that was. We've since done uh, tens of thousands of sweat tests on athletes. And there's a lot of data in the literature as well that backs up what we've done. So lots of other people have done testing for various reasons. And basically when you sweat, you lose sodium in your sweat. And it tends to vary from between someone who loses a little bit will lose two or 300 milligrams of sodium in every liter. And someone who loses a hell of a lot can lose over 2000 milligrams. So we always therefore quote, you know, there's roughly a tenfold difference in the amount of sodium people losing their sweat. The average is about 900 milligrams. And I was about double the average. Mm -hmm. So right up pushing on the, the higher end. And then, and then that you've got to multiply that up by the amount of liters that you sweat. So obviously, if you've got a high sweat rate or if you're in hot and humid conditions and you're doing a really long race, then your total percentage, your total um, net sodium losses can be so, so much higher than, than either you in cold conditions or someone else with different physiology. Because what we've tended to see when we've tested elite athletes that have done really, really well in hot conditions quite often not always but quite often they they tend to have like reasonably high sweat rates because that's good for cooling but often slightly lower sodium concentration loss in their sweat because if they don't they can struggle and we've worked with we've worked with a couple of aussie triathletes actually who've been like killing it on the international stage but struggling in places like kona and up in even up in cairns at the ironman there because of 
high sodium loss. Mm. You know, because there becomes a point where it's like you can replace as much as you can try to replace, but ultimately your your body's battling against homeostasis breaking down if you're not taking enough stuff on, which you know is why when we looked, so when we started out precision hydration, we weren't really focused on products for people because we wanted to, you know, I wanted to test people. And then I thought, well, there's, there's, there's enough sports drinks in the world already. Surely, you know, we can, so we created this massive table of products to recommend to people. But what became really clear really quickly is that most sports nutrition drinks or, or supplements have pretty low levels of sodium in or, or, you know, sort of low to moderate. They might come in like 15 different flavors and have three different types of carbohydrate in them or whatever, but they basically don't vary the sodium level too much. So at that point we were getting frustrated and thought, no, we, what we've got to do is just like take the confusion out of this and have a low strength, medium strength, high strength, you know, very high strength drink. So we now have the drinks that go up from 250 milligrams of sodium per litre right up to 1500 milligrams a litre to try and cover off that range you know, for people. It makes it really easy to follow. So Obviously, you can go and get specifically tested, but even the online stuff that they've got is magnificent. And I think I got recommended in a personal email um, that Precision sends out is to get the one thousand, the one thousand at the moment. And if that, if that, um, obviously, if I get um, in a warm day or or a, or a real, obviously that goes up as well. But the Gold Coast Marathon down here, uh, Andy. Is, is a tough one because it is in July, which is technically our winter, but it is obviously one of the warmest cities in the nation. So a lot of uh, runners from down south do have their moments. And and you're right. So you've got people that um, we, we speak about sweating often on this show and, and why we do it. And that, so you've got people that would sweat and would absolutely dominate. And you've got people that may not sweat as much to the surface of the eye, but obviously do struggle in that heat. And, and that if that's you and you're listening to this show, um, you would definitely be a prime candidate to to research some of this kind of stuff. And because you've done all the work, if you're doing the hundred K weeks or more and you're doing the specific work, um, they, these are one percenters that can take you, like they can make or break you. So it's so, it's so bloody important um, marathon or anything up really. We've got a lot of ultra guys as well, Andy, but I was intrigued. Um, I know you've said a lot of stuff over the journey with the, the dehydration factor and, and the speed. And so the guys at the pointy end, like the 205 to 215 marathon is dropping four to five to six, eight, 10% of their body weight. Sometimes, you um, know, I know Haley Gabriel is famous for that in, in races. What about the ultra guys? If they're, this is just something, this is just an off the cuff question, but if they're just tipping along at, at zone one, zone two, um, zone two, zone three, even um, how, how does this, work for those guys if they can stay well under their threshold it's a it's a really good question because i reckon that there's this kind of if you imagine a graph like um there's an inverted u shape of your the aggressiveness of your hydration needs which so if you go at the one end of the graph at the far left hand side you've got like 5k 10k and that sort of thing where hydration isn't such an issue what you've got to do is show up well hydrated and you'll sweat but you'll get through it and you won't lose enough. And then as the graph goes up, the importance of getting your hydration and electrolyte intake increases as you go to like half marathon, marathon, probably I'm I'm guessing here because of not, this is not research, but just practical experience, but somewhere around kind of marathon to sort of short ultra distance, it peaks because you're running really quite hard for maybe like three or four hours, five hours, even depending how fit you are. Um, and then as you get into really long stuff, like 100 milers, whatever, the pace, obviously, as you've said, the pace obviously drops to the point where you're producing less heat. So you actually your sweat rate per hour will reduce um, compared with that. So it be, and you're moving a bit slower. So it becomes a bit easier to consume food, to consume liquid. And, and so I would say you still have to that it's it matters over those long distances because over the amount of time that you're out, the, the potential for accruing large fluid and electrolyte losses is there, but the rate at which you're going to be losing it is less. So you might find that you have a less aggressive intake strategy. In other words, you go mm. a bit more back to listening to your body and going on feel in some of the longer stuff. Um, that's if you're experienced. If you're inexperienced, I think it's important to work with a plan 
for guiding your intake but definitely the level of intake that say works for you in a in a hard marathon might not work for you in an ultra because you because as you've said you're going more zone one two you're not you're not burning as much energy as fast you're using a bit more fat you're not sweating quite as heavily and also if you're out there doing a hundred miler you probably start in the cool conditions you go through the heat of the day and then you might end up finishing in cool conditions so you have to kind of adjust your plan as the weather changes throughout it so it has it has slightly different considerations i I would i would say the other thing is if you've got if you've got a problem with your hydration plan as in if your plan is inadequate you're not going to you're not generally taking enough or if at the flip side if you're problem is that you're over concerned about this and you like taking too much fluid or too much electrolytes in an in a long ultra is the time when you'll find that out because you've obviously got the amount of hours in which to make that mistake really you can really hammer a mistake home let me see what i mean because if you if you're out there and you make a mistake in a two-hour race it can it can be it can be a little bit you know um sort of detrimental to your performance but you if you habitually take in too much fluid an hour over eight or nine hours you end up in a whole world of trouble compared with you know get so so it's it's, it's kind of a weird one and i'm maybe not describing this great but i think the you have to the longer the race goes on the more you have to get this right but that doesn't just mean that longer equals more it's a combination of intensity and this is where I come back to that thing about there's not a simple answer. It's yeah. like a little no, I, bit of personal experience, a lot of organized trial and error, understanding what the parameters are. There's um basically pe- people sort of sometimes think that trial and error and using science are two different things. It's like either you work something out on a yeah. spreadsheet and you get the numbers or you just wing it. And I don't believe that that is remotely true. The, you get the numbers and then what you do is you is you the numbers are there to help get you in roughly the right zone. Mm. So another example in in um, if you took a it pacing would be another great example for runners because if you send a novice runner out and say like run I want you to run an even pace as hard as you can for ten miles, the chances are they're either going to set off way too fast or way too way too easy. They're not going to set off. Whereas if you or I went and did it, you'd probably get within i don't know five ten seconds a mile of what you could hold because you've got experience you've got data to to build on whereas if we took that novice and we did a treadmill test with them did a bit of maths and worked out okay i reckon for you it's going to be eight minutes a mile give or take we could give them a gps watch and send them off and, and say to them don't let this go above 745 or below 815 and see if that and sort of get them in the right space and that's what that's what I believe. That's the function that I think that the sweat test and the hydration advice sort of provides. It's not that we're going to be able to tell you it's exactly this, but what we can do is kind of rule out that, okay, Rick, you're not a guy who's going to need like no electrolytes, but also you're not a guy like me who's going to need off the charts high amounts. So we can get you in the right bucket to then play around and figure it out for yourself. And it makes perfect sense. And the curve that you used, I know we we can look at each other, but um, for the listeners, it was it was perfectly put. Um, I just did it again, even though I know they can't see me, mate. But they it was <laughs> it was perfectly put. Um, and if you miss that for the, I guess for the intensity type stuff of the the half marathon, marathon especially, um, and and those yeah those short ultras, and and that comes into seventy point threes and and the Ironman as well. But then if you're running for eight, nine, 10, 12 hours, it's, it's so exactly right, mate. You'd be silly to not plan it because you like, if you stuff that up at the three hour mark, it's a long way home. It's a real long way home. And, and chances are, it's not going to, it's not going to end too well. So, and the data that we can get and, and we can, we've got all this science at our disposal. We, we take that on board and we're going to be, a lot closer than what we thought we were just from, just from ad libbing or just from going off, off the cuff. So take it on board and then practice it yourself. What works for you in these situations? Um, super that, no, that was brilliantly answered. Oh, that's, that really makes a lot of sense. And I guess coming from that, I just want you to take us through because training in general, um, especially in endurance sports, like, look, a, a lot's changed, but then with, with, methodology and physiology at times we still take from 
the, as as physiologists and coaches from the Gershlers and the the Zatapaks and the Gostahomers of the world at times in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, some of that methodology still rings really true. I'm not sure that's quite the same for what we're talking about today, um, but I'd get you to take us through real succinctly the, the last century of um, performance hydration because um, I reckon that some of our listeners will be on all these different gamuts because they might have heard stuff from the 40s, 30s, 20s, 80s, whatever it is, and then we'll probably lead that into how hyponatremia and other things started to really become prevalent within um, Ironman and, and distance events. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important part of the, the story because you're right, 100 years ago or so, they used to say to athletes, the same was probably true with the eating as well as drinking, was just don't eat or drink anything if you're doing a run. There's a famous quote by James Sullivan, who was the head of the Amateur Athletics Union in the US, who said, don't eat or drink anything in a marathon. It'll only hurt your performance or some words like that. And that was that was really common advice. In Really interestingly, as a sort of slight diversion from that, I just read a paper the other day, which I found when I was researching some stuff about energy intake for athletes, that it was really common back then for people to try to run marathons, drinking and eating absolutely nothing. And researchers at the Boston Marathon in 1924 were taking blood samples and seeing the state of finishes at the marathon. And they they took a bunch of people who were in a bad, bad way at the end of the Boston Marathon in 1924 and they identified that they had low sugar levels in their blood. So the next year, they took the same people and they gave them um, sweet tea, hot sweet tea with sugar in it and sweets to eat, like candy sweets, to, boiled sweets or something to eat on the way round to like keep their blood sugar levels up effectively, like what we'd call now like you know sparing your muscle glycogen. And all of them basically performed better were in way better condition at the finish. They had higher you know, sugar levels and all the rest of it. And it's kind of like the first time that someone put two and two together from a scientific point of view and thought, actually, we should be telling athletes to do this. But what's amazing is even they were finding that out in, in the 1920s, but you go right up to the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and still the sort of general theme was like don't don't eat too much and certainly don't drink too much they used to in the tour de france for example they used to withhold bottles from the riders and say you know you've got to toughen up and not drink so right up until the sort of like 60s really maybe mid 60s the, the feeling was drink less for hydration you know you'll be better off because you'll kind of toughen up and then in the 60s 70s you know gatorade was invented in florida for the for the Gators American football team because it's really hot and humid and they were putting electrolytes and carbohydrates in their drink and allegedly that made the team perform way better in the second half of games and so and Gatorade became this really sort of popular mass product which generated loads of money which put money into research of sports hydration and then that what that did was created this kind of massive surge in interest in this but it gradually over the kind of over the 70s 80s into the 90s maybe started to push the needle the other way to like not that you shouldn't drink but you should actually if we give athletes something to drink it makes them perform better so then the logical conclusion of that is okay well the more we drink the better we become and that was a kind of message that i grew up with in the 90s doing sports science was dehydration is a real killer we used to say to athletes don't drink anything but actually we've got it all wrong we should be telling athletes to drink loads and that was the backdrop because i mentioned earlier i had a bit of hyponatremia you used the word before which is like low blood sodium levels where you've usually with athletes that comes from diluting your blood down by drinking too much and not having enough sodium and it's quite a dangerous condition and in the in the 90s and the early 2000s it was noticed that a lot of athletes were going down with hyponatremia in long hot races and part of that a big part of that was attributed to the fact that sports drink industry was like pushing the idea of drinking loads and unfortunately it has resulted in some athletes dying over the years um hence there's been a big there was a big pushback against over drinking in the sort of around i guess around sort of like late to s early 2010s when a guy called um, Professor Tim Noakes, who most runners will have heard of from the Law of Running book, and he's a South African physiologist and doctor, and he he put this book called Waterlogged out, which then 
attacked the sports drink industry, made out, made out that you know overhydration was the biggest problem, and it is a, it has been a big problem. I certainly suffered from it myself, and then pushed the needle back the other way. And it is just a bit crazy though how we get these kind of massive swings from like don't drink anything, drink as much as you can, and it, and the reason for that going back to what you said originally is I think because people want a soundbite. They want a simple answer. It's like the simple answer, Rick, is don't drink anything. Or the simple answer is drink as much as you can. Or in Tim Noakes' case, the simple answer is drink when you're thirsty. And there's so many cases where it probably is. You can probably pick a case where all three of those are right mm. to do. There'll be times when you don't want to drink anything. There'll be times when you want to basically drink as much as you can. And there'll be times when you want to drink to, to thirst but it's actually them figuring out the demands of the event your physiology your rate of loss all those things that none of which going back to my my comment about things being you know precise but needing trial and error none of which means that you have to pre-plan everything that you drink and work it all out but you do have to apply yourself to a little bit of investigation to then get to the bottom of, of actually what works for you It'd be a bit like saying, you know, it's like comparing it to a training plan where at one end of the spectrum, you've got like, I'm not going to have a plan at all. I'm just going to get up every day and go for it and see what happens. Or the other end of the scale is I've got a plan. And no matter how I feel, no matter what the weather's like, no matter what anything happens, I am going to do what's on that plan. And we both know that those two extremes will not result in great performance. Somewhere in between the two, though, like having a plan which you then adapt on the fly and, you know, listen to your body and all those sort of things is just universally applicable to what athletes do and there's no reason it shouldn't be for hydration and nutrition as well no it's it's perfect and we talk about it all the time on this show and other shows like it that you you just have to be a little bit uh malleable and you can't just be married to the program but at the other end this you've got to have some some um plan and some structure about you as well so brilliantly put and i guess the the drink to thirst or or run to thirst or, or whatever the the saying is from Noakes. He, Professor Noakes does like to go to one extreme or the other, and there might be different different stuff. That's another story. But um, he he does know his stuff, and he did brought some good stuff out. But this is so true. Yeah. You can't. You certainly can't. Um, you can't be going and training to thirst. There's there's been some good studies, um, and oh, you remind me of the one in 2015 because it's a it's a ripper uh, with placebos and the like that the sodium deficient athletes and then um the, the athletes who took sodium on so remind yeah, them that that's a cracker that one was so there was a study published on triathletes in 2015 i think it was done the research was done in spain i think it was published in the scandinavian journal of sports medicine or something like that and what they did was they took a bunch of half ironman athletes and they they compared their performance in a race where they were taking what they thought were salt capsules but actually what they did was they gave half of them placebo capsules with basically nothing in or nothing that would affect their hydration and they gave half of them proper sodium capsules and what they found was that the performance in the group that got the sodium uh, was that they they um, they voluntarily drank a bit more water in the race which is what you'd expect if you give people salt because it salt drives thirst and they they generally maintain their their body mass better, their blood plasma level better, and they performed better than a group that that sort of didn't have that. And, you know, that's quite a long race and it's in hot conditions. So the common sense side of you thinks, well, that's what we'd expect to see. And it's and it's good that that, mm. that study backed it up. And that's where that's where I sort of start to have a problem with some of the some of the very definitive statements that people make out there about, oh well, you know, we don't need electrolytes or whatever. It's like, well, no, there are circumstances when we don't need them, but you start to go long, hard events. Now we've got studies now and lots of anecdotal mm. cases and, and all the rest of it where you take people and you go, right, well, I mean, I were at this, this Sunday just gone, I ran two and a bit hours in the UK. It's like literally it was one degree on Sunday. And I, and I ran for two hours and I think I drank 300 milliliters. I took basically no electrolytes. I ate quite a lot of calories. It was cold, yeah. but I could do the exact same run in, in the middle, middle of summer here. And I'd probably drink two liters, yeah. you know, 
and and take on two or two and a half grams of, of sodium during that time because right. it's so you, you you just have to cut the cloth to suit and that that study was a great example of you know showing that if you if you allow people to supplement to a sensible level quite often you drive a better outcome that last sentence andy is a brilliant brilliant like for listeners just to go over and over again on their own training regime look if it's one degree celsius outside um you, you're not going to be married to your old system if, you, if you're if you did a race in gold coast or Cairns or or you did a race in in kona for example so that's brilliant it just takes a bit of common sense speaking to the experts speaking to your coaches um and just deliberating the subjective data of all oh, today i'm running for two and a half hours in the, in the one degree weather take us through this is really good i reckon for the listeners um take us through the hypertonic isotonic hypotonic and and i guess the evolution because sports drinks that market themselves really well in the 80s and 90s um unfortunately were part of the problem at times with these kind of so take take the listeners through those those three yeah so we've got you've got three different sort of categories of sports drink really and if you start with the start with the middle one actually because that's the most common one is isotonic sports drinks and isotonic m- means that it's got a similar tonicity a similar sort of like thickness to your blood so in theory that means that when you drink it it's absorbed relatively quickly into the bloodstream it usually contains a little uh, some electrolytes usually a fairly low level like 300 to 500 milligrams a liter and usually about six percent carbohydrate so that means that in a half liter bottle of it, you're usually going to get about 30 grams of 35 grams of carbohydrate, something like that. And that's like your Lucas age, your Gatorade, your power aids, all the kind of standard sports drinks. And they're, they're sort of like the sports drink equivalent of the Jack of all trades. They're designed to give you a little bit of fluid, some carbohydrates, a little bit of electrolytes and, and be used for, for, you know, powering, short to medium activity so anytime when you're doing you've got enough glycogen in your body and usually enough fluid that if you're going for an hour or so you don't need to take anything in if you're fully stocked but you go a little bit beyond that and it starts to benefit you to take in some carbs and maybe some fluids and and, and possibly some electrolytes so that isotonic sports drink was like the ultimate thing for playing 90 minutes of soccer or um you know potentially like a fast half marathon runner to have a bit of that or some or something it's is that but but the problem with an isotonic drink is that when it gets really hot and you'll know about this living where you do you drink a lot of that stuff to hydrate with and all of a sudden if you're drinking like two three bottles of that an hour you go taking on a lot of sugar it's going to make you feel very sick it's going to block your stomach up you feel and i had this in in the ironman in kona where i was guzzling Gatorade down from the aid stations and you just my stomach just blew up like a watermelon you know it's just too much so isotonic drinks are like good jack of all trades for short shorter endurance stuff but kind of don't do hydration brilliant as brilliantly and maybe not energy as brilliantly if you go above them you got hypertonic which is like really strong so eight ten twelve percent carbohydrate or really thick heavy drinks uh, one example that athletes do sometimes use there would be flat coca-cola which is about 10 percent carbohydrate and hypertonic drinks are very bad at hydrating you relatively because the carbohydrate concentration or the solute concentration is so high it pulls fluid from the from the bloodstream into the gut to dilute it before it before things can pass back the other way so you you almost like dehydrate yourself a little bit more to absorb them but what they are brilliant at is delivering high loads of energy so if you're having a massive sugar crash and they're feeling awful late on in the race that's why a coca-cola or something is so good at picking you up because it delivers a really fast dose of glucose into your bloodstream on the on the lower end and this is where the drinks that we currently make sort of come in is hypotonic drinks so hypotonic drinks are lower lower concentration in your blood they have they can have very high amounts of electrolytes though and a, a, a ideal for drinking in larger volumes or when hydration is the important thing so they move from the they move from your gut into the bloodstream really fast and they rehydrate you more effectively and hypotonic drinks are like two or three percent carbohydrate or very low carbohydrate but quite high electrolytes because the, elect- the the sodium moves through the gut wall into the bloodstream, pulls fluid with it, can be assisted by glucose if there's a bit of glucose in there. 
and and that holds more fluid in the bloodstream. So that's why our hydration drinks range tends to be hypotonic because when you when your priority is replacing sweat losses and hydration, as it is in longer and hotter events, you're often better off drinking a hypotonic lighter drink than you are drinking something thicker and heavier, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And that's that's really good because a lot of people listening to this love their running and 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 would really study the the physiology and the, the science of the of the actual methodology but this stuff is brilliant because this is this stuff makes the massive difference and if you're on a course unfortunately sometimes you don't give it too much thought or you've done all the work and you just get there and drink whatever's on course whether it's endura gatorade powerade whatever it is um so it's just good to know the ins and outs and that's a really well explained answer for like i'm certainly not an expert in this field by any stretch so i love hearing that and the ins and outs of that so that's brilliant um what about take us through to finish this little section off the apart from the obvious one of death, the the symptoms and the signs of hyponatremia on performance, because people will um, will be able to relate to that, I reckon, really really well, mm-hmm. and they go, well, that was me at bloody um, yeah Perth Marathon or whatever. Um, take take it this, this what everything the neurological every, everything that would happen as an athlete experiencing hyponatremia. Well, one of the things where hyponatremia gets you is that when you drink too much water or too much low sodium fluid normally in everyday life you pee out some of the excess to keep everything in balance your kidneys just kick it out but either when you drink so much that you overwhelm your kidneys or when you're exercising you release hormones that slow the rate at which you pee so it's easier for fluid to build up you you what you find happens is the sodium obviously you drink something it goes from your stomach into your gut from your gut into your bloodstream and then if your blood's getting diluted then your body will basically shunt fluid out of the bloodstream and into its own cells. So that's why people with hyponatremia sometimes present with swollen fingers, swollen ankles. You know, you look puffy because you are sort of, in Tim Noakes' words, you are waterlogged. And the dangerous bit is when that goes into your brain because because you, your brain absorbs the water and it, and it expands and it's got nowhere to go. So it can crush up against your skull and cause horrible, you know, neurological, neurological damage so one of the signs of hyponatremia can be headaches and confusion and that sort of thing because you feel start feeling lousy um, a big one that i used to feel if i was becoming a bit hyponatremic is just like really you do feel a bit i don't know if it's irritable or just you certainly your mood changes you feel like you're becoming you might even become a bit you know confused or disoriented if it's getting bad but you definitely feel like low mood and that that sort of like weird malaise and feeling of fatigue that feels a bit like it does when you've got really low blood sugar but when you've got low blood sugar if you've been there as an athlete you'll you'll know that you sort of intuitively understand that getting some sweets or some chocolate or a a drink will like sort you out you feel like that's what i need whereas with hyponatremia it doesn't feel like that you can take loads of sugar on board and you won't feel any better because that's not the problem and so it's it's like you just feel like if you're on a bike you'd be watching your power just drop and drop and drop no matter how hard you try if you're running you just start to feel like you were clipping along at i don't know four four minutes 30 a k or six minutes a mile or wherever your pace is and it's just like slowing down but your effort level staying high you just feel like you're you're running through porridge and then for not not for everyone but for a lot of people for me a big sign was cramping you know you start to feel like your muscles are tightening up and you're starting to get cramps and and that sort of thing so it's not super easy to like categorically identify but if you put any of those symptoms together and then then look back at yourself and go do you know what i have been drinking a lot in the last two three hours then that can be a sign that actually what you need to and also actually fluid sloshing around in your stomach and that sort of thing like you're not absorbing it and if and if you're feeling any of those things and you're also feeling like you've not drunk you've drunk a lot then it's well worth at that point backing off on the liquid intake rather than doing what a lot of people do which is doubling down and thinking i must be dehydrated i'm going to drink more yeah, well, that, that's that's a good question as well. Like if you if you have made mistakes via um, lack of sodium intake early in a, in a long race, is is it retrievable? I think 
it depends on the severity. It's a bit like running out of energy. Mm. Like the, the better you get to know your body, like I've been out on long runs or been in races where you feel that that first little warning tap that's like, oh, I've not eaten enough today or oh, I've not drunk yeah. enough today. And then you inevitably probably then have to slow your pace and um, and take in whatever it is you need, like some more salt, some more liquids, some more calories or whatever. Slow your pace, absorb it. And sometimes you can come back to life. One thing I have heard, and I've had this in a, in a couple of early races, is that if you if you are getting pretty low on electrolytes and sodium, if you take a, a decent dose, you can, especially in a very long race, almost almost kind of come back from the dead, basically, mm. because it's absorbed relatively quickly, and and can can sort you out. You're probably on the on the point then when you need to keep supplementing to keep mm. your levels up if you're sweating a lot. But I would say the chances of the chance of retrieving a decent performance midway through a really long race is actually probably bigger than it is in say a marathon or a half marathon where we all know that if you kind of, if the wheels come off at 15 miles in a marathon, you've, you've got, you've got a long, hard 11 miles in front of you. And the chances is kind of turning it around a slim. If you, if you start to suffer 45 miles into a hundred miler, within five or eight miles, you can be back on song again. If you walk and you know, take in what you need and get yourself back. So yeah, great answer. And going from that and then we'll, we'll move on. That was the one extreme, a little bit more common or what people might know a bit more, the signs of dehydration uh, in long races. Um, and every listener would have possibly experienced this as well. Um, the signs of dehydration and is that retrievable in a marathon? Yeah, I would say dehydration is probably in shorter races i include marathons in that it's probably less common than what people than people perceive it to be because as long as you start really well hydrated you've got to go quite a long way to get really dehydrated now it can happen especially in hot conditions that you're you know you're sort of training and racing in but the big signs are obviously like thirst is the biggest one because thirst is like a pretty power, universal, powerful drive. If you get beyond a certain point of dehydration, everyone gets very thirsty and you will just be seeking out water. And if, as long as there's water on the course, you, you'll, be, you'll be okay. Um, with, with the sort of more, I actually think for a lot of runners, because individual training sessions aren't super long often, the more, the more pressing problem with, dehydration is kind of like chronic dehydration that builds up over two or three days during a heavy training block or during a spell of hot weather so i came out this not this time last yeah it would have been this time last year sort of january february 2020 i came out to the gold coast actually and was it was that that came straight from the uk where it's freezing i'm not acclimatized at all and i was going running every day you know, because the weather's beautiful and I just wanted to get out there. And I and I had to be really careful because I'm sweating a lot. And all of a sudden, after two, three days, I can feel like a, a level of dehydration building up because I'm just not, I'm just not drinking enough during the day to, to, you know, to correct for that. So a big sign for me that I knew that was happening is that when I stand up quick, if I've been sat down or lying down, you get lightheaded and dizzy. You know, that kind of spaced yeah. out feeling of low blood pressure because dehydration is effectively low blood pressure. It's low blood volume. So I think that's a big, that's a big sign to watch out for. That's a really great tip. Accumulated dehydration, which many of us um, get caught up in, in all the other stuff, but you forget about those kind of things. That's a really good tip. Tiny bit off topic, but not really. If you're not mentioning coming to the Gold Coast, um, Callum Hawkins, could he have done in 2018 in the Gold Coast, which is yeah. one of the, or depends, one of the more harrowing, but also one of the one of the most amazing sporting moments of the last 10 years. Um, Callum Hawkins uh, coming out, led the whole way and drew very dramatically at the, at the end of the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games Marathon, just could not go on and, and tried a few times. Um, is there anything, he was there, I'm not sure how long, I think it was, it was at least four to five, maybe six weeks he was here, uh, maybe more, oh, I'm not sure, but he did, he did try to acclimatise. From a, a sports scientist perspective, what could he have done? Anything different? Clearly, he could have, but what it's, yeah, it was quite drastic. I think it's really hard to say without knowing exactly what prep he did, but you can assume that at his level, like you say, he's come out and acclimatized to the heat. So you, you're going to different people acclimatize at different rates and to different extents. But generally speaking, if you spend four or five weeks somewhere hot and are training, you're pretty well going to be 
as well acclimatized as you can be. Quite a lot of the adaptations ha happen in the first two weeks. And even and even before that, a really lot of adaptations happen in the first five days. Mm. So I've certainly noticed, because my travel tends to be sporadic and quite short. Like I can go to Arizona in the US or Florida or, or go to Australia. And like the first couple of days you feel lousy, but by day three, four, five, you're actually like starting to. So you can imagine that after five weeks, he's feeling like, pretty comfortable as comfortable as he's going to feel in that environment and actually i think the biggest factor that probably derailed him was was as simple as like going just that little bit too hard so pacing just going that little bit too hard for the conditions because what when he broke down it wasn't so much i mean it's a breakdown of homeostasis in the body that you that you're watching but it looks like when you look at it from the outside people were saying, oh, he's dehydrated or low blood sugar order. And he probably had lost a lot of fluid and he probably was challenging his energy supplies. But what it looked more like was heat stroke, you know, like a, mm. like a, where, where, he's over, where his core body temperatures got too high. And that's usually caused by, well, it is caused by too much heat building up and not dissipating to the environment. And the heat buildup happens when you run really hard as obvious as that sounds, because you produce the heat from your muscles, it's got to go somewhere. And when the environment's as hot as it was that day, it's really difficult to offload the heat. So unfortunately, probably one of the only ways he could have avoided that was not to run as fast. But then obviously, if he doesn't run as fast, he's not leading the race. And, you know, it's kind of, so he he took a risk, basically, like you often have to do to win a gold medal. And sometimes that, that could have happened to him like two meters after the finish line, but it happened to him like, a mile or two a mile, before we yeah. got there. Yeah, that, and that was, sorry. sorry, sorry. I was just going to say what what's amazing is that when you watch that, it's it, it is like shocking to watch and like pretty horrid to watch. But also in a in a weird way, if you take the human element out of it and go look at the physiology, it's like mm. impressive to watch mm. someone who can push themselves that hard because most of us would have stopped by the side of the course a long time before he did because you'd have because that's what makes some of these really top elite athletes different, isn't it? Is their, their focus. And we've all, we've all had big goal races where we've pushed ourselves really hard and all the rest of it. But like Johnny Brownlee, the triathlete did it in Cozumel, I think it was where his brother carried him across the line. And it, it takes an uncommon level of sort of pushing and motivation to push yourself that hard to where your physiology actually starts to fail. Yeah. It's and, yeah. It's the kind of thing you can watch over and over again. Actually, like you, as a an athlete of nowhere near that level, it's just it is phenomenal to be able to watch that. Yeah. Look, it, it, that race, like that Brownlee incident was is phenomenal as well. Must be all you UK guys, mate. Just built, built, built tough, built very well, yeah. tough. Well, I don't know, don't know. I'm not built for the heat. That's for sure. <laughs> I think that's part. I think that's well, part of the problem. Well, that race, if the Commonwealth Games races in Glasgow, he, he just wins, doesn't he? Like he um he wins with a leg in the air, but it, it wasn't. Well, it wasn't. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, when when because people laugh about it, we're all because we're all basically built the same, aren't we? From the same physiology, you know. Certainly, um, you know, there's not a huge genetic difference between, you know, Aussie guys who've trained in the heat all their lives and UK guys who like, you know, we get sunburn, you know, on a mild May day. And the I remember, but I remember doing a. a qualification race for the Hawaii Ironman which was in Wales in Lamberis in Wales and it was there were some Spanish guys there and some French guys there and I think even like Luke Van Leerder who at the time was like the Ironman yeah. world champion was there and but it, it actually snowed on part of the bike it was like the water and the water was like nine degrees or something it was freezing cold and and I remember like I it wasn't very pleasant but I did totally fine I was like I was all good I had a little skin suit on and just cracked on because you just you just yeah. train in those conditions and, it, and i remember passing so many like spanish guys and french guys and and, yeah. and seeing all these like champion athletes by the side of the road and they were just taken out by the cold conditions and, and i don't know how much of that is like some of it's obviously physiological but some of it's psychological as well because your muscles do feel like crap in those conditions and you, you, you are like generating heat just enough to keep yourself warm. And, mm. But I do wonder how much of it is mental, how much is it is physical? Cause I then go to Spain to race, of course, when it's like 30 degrees and they're all laughing at me because mm. I'm in a puddle of sweat by the side of the course and they're ticking along happy as anything. Like layman's view from myself in that would would be the the heat is would definitely be more physiological. And, but I, I, I agree. I think that nine and 10 degree day, 
would have to be more psychological from some, from most perspectives. Like if, if they're just, it's bloody uncomfortable. Look, it's not, for yeah. these, these are elite athletes that have chased the sun their whole lives, but not by, just by the way of their sport and their profession. But, um, and they get to a, a, a day in Wales where the, the water's absolutely freezing and, and everything's just hard and blowing a gale. That would be, have to be, even if it's a subconscious level psychological, um, but that, that you could do a whole other show on that. Yeah, oh, it's, it's an interesting topic, but I I just, I always feel like I'd have done better if the Hawaii Ironman was in Scotland. Yeah, you mate, you, <laughs> you, you would this, this, uh, you wouldn't have had started this company until probably now, 2021, you'd still be on tour. Yeah, exactly. You'd still be on tour. No, it's really good. I guess, what's the future now for you guys? I know you've got athletes all over the world in every country. You've got um, the product everywhere, which is magnificent. And I know that you've very generously um, given runners some, some big discounts, guys. So precisionhydration.com, of course, precisionhydration.com. If you just go the code RUNNERS15, they get 15% off all the products. I implore you to take the sweat test on there. And there's also a really good course that, that you run, mate, through, um, through Training Peaks, which is brilliant. Uh, is it Training Peaks? Yeah, Training Peaks. Tra- Training Peaks University. Yeah, we've got a, a course called The Science of Endurance Hydration. So it probably, you know, you've done the course, obviously, Rick, and it mm. delves into a few of the topics that we talked about yeah, today. Really- so if anyone wants to you know, learn a bit more, there's that. There's also um, on our website, we've got blogs with a lot of with a lot of background. And there's a couple of blogs, like there's one on isotonic and hypertonic drinks. There's a, there's one on hypernatremia that I can share the links with you to put in the show notes for this as well. Might be worth a look. We'll put, we'll definitely put the blogs in the show notes. Um, if you want to do the course, it's brilliant. The Honestly, I loved it. The pod, podcast 15 is the, is the code there for runners listening. Like, this is great stuff. And if you, if you any way interested in getting better as an endurance athlete this is the stuff you can like i said at the start of the show really move the needle on your own performance and why wouldn't you want to do yourself justice like you you put so many hours in a week in these are the little things we can move the needle but um again we'll put all those codes in the show notes as well and then in the show yeah those blogs would be great a couple of ones that we spoke about already uh today on the show would be fantastic mate but i guess what's the future hold for you guys just continue to to help athletes all over the world yeah, definitely. We're we're looking to find more and more places and people that we can really have an impact with. So we've we've been doing in the last two three years doing a, a ton more in Australia specifically because obviously you guys have a great outdoor culture and also hot really hot conditions to, to change. So we've now got sweat testing available in Perth. We've got sweat testing available on the Gold Coast in 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 Brisbane um in sydney so we've got lots of we've got lots of options there if people if anyone is oz based and wants to like tap into that then they can email us just email hello at precisionhydration.com tell us where you are we can put you in touch with there's shane hannah who's down in in sydney area we've got phil young who's on the gold coast we've got Corey and blake who are based in perth out the athletic institute they've got sweat testing machines and can offer sweat testing over in new zealand as well we've got we've got russ smith and a couple of other test centers so we're we're interested in like doing more in that area because i think it's you know if if this is useful to people in the uk it's got to be like five times as useful to 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 australia the other thing that we're doing as well is we're looking at applying some of the knowledge that we've gained through individualizing hydration to expanding that to look at fueling as well so we are working on sort of like um, fueling products and also as importantly sort of like the online sweat test for doing for prescribing the amount of um, sodium and fluid you might want to try experimenting around with looking at ways to guide people's energy intake as well because obviously the two go hand in hand and that that's actually something worth mentioning because this year with this this last 12 months with everyone being in various states of lockdown we haven't been to as many events so what we to talk to athletes so we set up these free zoom video call so anyone can go to our website and again i can give you the link so people can book yeah. this but you can come okay. to the website book a free zoom call with one of with myself or one of the team to chat about hydration and and your performance if you've got specific questions but then a lot of the questions that we started to get doing that for the last year have been around combining your nutrition and your hydration strategy so we've been working on products and systems through that and they're not they're not fully ready yet but in the next few months you'll see some more stuff coming out from us in that sphere. That's brilliant. Interesting. No, all that stuff's great. We'll, we'll obviously share it in the notes, but also on our show, socials as well. And within the runners red zone over the next few months, we'll, we'll keep you updated with what Andy, Andy Blow and the team are doing. 
at Precision Hydration because they are um, cutting edge and pretty much 90% of our red zoners and, and runners all over the world and listeners to this show want to continue to get faster and better and run faster for longer. So um, this is this is a massive part of that. Andy, I thank you so much. Is Now, what time is it over there in the UK currently, buddy? Just coming, just gone 7 a.m. Oh, you, you had a coffee yet? I have, mate, a very large one. You're a champion. You're a good man. We're just um you know, what's the weather what's the weather doing today in London? Oh, it's um grey, mate, unfortunately. I'm yeah. sure I can see the sun streaming in the window behind you and I'm yes. very jealous. Yeah, sorry, it's uh, what do we got? Quarter past six nearly at night here. We we're still in uh yeah, summer, so yeah, take it while it's here if you're in Melbourne. Melbourne's up and down. Um, thank you so, so much. It won't be the last listeners that you hear of uh, Andy Blow by any stretch, but we'll keep you updated. We'll share all that great info and great data. And from there, and we hope to see Andy, uh, well, we might be a bit t- touch and go for Gold Coast 2021, but we will get uh, Andy to a race in Australia or even better. We'll plan to get the London Marathon in 2022. would be even better, some of our Aussie runners. And we know we've got a lot of red zoners in London, so we'd love to get over there and too. Andy, any parting words, great man? No, just just massive thanks for the chat, Rick. I love your, you know, what you guys are doing and the, the sort of – it's, it's nice to be able to have a conversation with someone who understands the nuance of all of this. And, you know, you, you guys are doing, doing a great job getting it, getting good information out to your, your crew. So we'd love to meet up with you all if you come over to London. And certainly if we, if we can get on a plane anytime in the next few years, we'll be, we'll be down to come and see you and catch up in person. Can't wait, mate. I can't wait. Um, Andy Blow, thank you so much. You've done great for the industry and I love to, um, I can't wait to get these products down over the next few weeks. So thank you. Uh, Runners, listeners, make sure you're doing something today. It's going to make you that little bit better tomorrow. You can start off by getting stuck into the Precision Hydration website. That'll absolutely get you there.